The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Empowering Providers and Patients to Battle Advanced Biliary Tract Cancers. Expert guidance on integrating the latest evidence on immunotherapy and targeted agents in real-world practice. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash GUS 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good evening. Uh, welcome to our seminar. It's entitled Empowering Providers and Patients to Battle Advanced Biliary Tract Cancer. Uh, the, the hope of this seminar is uh, to provide expert guidance on integrating the latest evidence for immunotherapy and targeted therapy, targeted agents in real-world practice. My name is Milin Javle from MD Anderson, and I'm very privileged to have with me Dr. Rashna Shroff from University of Arizona and Dr. Tony Saab from Mayo Clinic. Uh, the Cholangiocarcinoma Foundation is really an excellent resource for professional patients and caregivers. Uh, Cholangiocarcinoma Foundation uh, has a strong advocacy program, and they have an email advocacy at cholangiocarcinoma.org, and their mission is to find cure and improve the quality of life for those who are affected by this cancer. And I must have timed it right, because right behind you over there, you see Stacy Lindsay and Juan and Ash, so welcome. Uh, you please visit uh, cholangiocarcinoma.org for, for the resources that patients can use. You can get the latest information about the disease, connect with other patients, participate in clinical trials. I know from my experience, and I can tell you the same with Rashna and, and Dr. Saab, that we have found this uh, uh, foundation to be a great resource for our patients. They have a, um, an International Cholangiocarcinoma Patient Registry. Uh, where I hope that uh, all patients would choose to participate. And there is a website that is on this, uh, that is marked here, cholangiocarcinoma.org, International uh, Regist Patient Registry. You can also find a specialist who trains in the disease, and I'm proud to say that now throughout the country, uh, there are several. And you can also find it on latest clinical trials. You can download the practice aid to share information uh, regarding cholangiocarcinoma uh, foundation with your patients. <clears throat> So going to the seminar today, our goals are to improve understanding of the latest clinical evidence for modern therapeutic approach for BTC, or biliary tract cancer, including immunotherapy and targeted platforms. So this, this session will be really focused on those two main areas which are evolving and have changed the treatment paradigm for our patients quite substantially. Uh, we hope to enhance skills, build individualized treatment plans, utilize biomarker findings through presentations given by uh, Dr. Saab, Dr. Shroff, and myself. We'll review current evidence, guideline, and, uh, uh, and as well as uh, guideline recommendations such as from NCCM. We hope to provide you with tools. Uh, these tools will develop team-based strategies. The treatment of this disease is multidisciplinary, and all of us work in uh, uh, large cancer centers, but I can tell you none of us can treat this disease in isolation. We need a team. Uh, this team can ad address practical considerations of care, uh, not the least of which include patient education and, and uh, management of AEs or adverse events. So I'm going now to the first part of the presentation, which is uh, really introduction to biliary tract cancer, which may not be new for uh, most of you, uh, but it doesn't hurt to revise this uh, again. Uh, this is the biliary tree, uh, which you will, you, uh, you will know the, the biliary tract is 
really exposed to a variety of toxins uh, as they flow from the liver to the small, small bowel. And it bifurcates at the junction uh, at the common hepatic duct, which was described by Dr. Klatskin in the 1930s. Uh, and below, the, so anything above that is cancer of the small bile ducts or intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, marked in the green, uh, or dark green, I think, is the uh, perihilar cholangiocarcinoma is the correct term, although we, can, we sometimes confuse ourselves and everyone else by multiple terms, such as Klatskin tumor, hilar cholangiocarcinoma, et cetera. Not to be confused is gallbladder cancer, which is a different disease epidemiologically and genetically. And extrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma also includes the lower part of the bile duct, the distal common bile duct, which actually is pancreas, sometimes confused as pancreas cancer. So these are uh, varied types of malignancies and the subtleties are only becoming more and more evident with time. And unfortunately, the incidence of this disease is increasing with time. So there's a study done by all of us here on the stage today, and we found that um, intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, this is based on the SEER registry data, the blue line that you see here, um, is intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. It's one of the most rapidly rising cancers in the Western world. And it's largely because we believe it's because of a lifestyle issue, because of the epidemic of obesity, substance abuse. Um, and, and, you know, these cancers can be diagnosed as cancer of unknown primary. And I want to just highlight here on this figure on the right, when you have these cancers diagnosed as unknown primary and treated as cancer of unknown primary as against cholangiocarcinoma, the survival of these patients in retrospective studies is worse because they often get suboptimal treatments. So uh, it is important to establish a diagnosis uh, quickly. Uh, unfortunately, there's too long a time that goes before patients are ever diagnosed. And uh, we are, this is just in our institution, and, but parallel in all institutions around, around the country, the incidence of this disease, the number of patients, unfortunately, is increasing every year. So these are, I'm gonna start with the current NCCM practice guidelines for unresectable and metastatic cholangiocarcinoma, which is the most common stage at which patients are diagnosed with this disease. So for a long time, for over a decade, we had gemcitabine and cisplatin, a regimen that was um, investigated um, in, in the United Kingdom by Dr. Y, who's right here. And I'm proud to say that now, we have, over the last two years, we have two um, new regimens, that is durvalumab with gemcitabine and cisplatin and pembrolizumab with gemcitabine and cisplatin. Category one recommendations, and I shall discuss those in a few minutes. And then we have in the, uh, uh, we have other recognized regimens for patients who are not candidates, for instance, for immunotherapy. Uh, there are certain subtleties that may prevent the agents, uh, such as cisplatin. So there are some alternatives which are recommended by, um, uh, by the NCCN. And then for subsequent line therapy, that is patients who, who, in whom disease progresses, um, this is an area of great interest and Dr., uh, both Dr. Saab and Dr. Shroff are gonna discuss the role of targeted therapies. Unfortunately, majority of patients do not have actionable mutations. And for them, the preferred regimens include Folfox, Folfiri, and a variety of other agents based on uh, uh, single arm phase two trials. Uh, but we're really hoping that this arm grows further where you have targeted therapy and immunotherapy in the second and subsequent line setting. So then not to, not to also 
be missed is that the disease treatment is multidisciplinary. So we can't just focus on chemotherapy and immunotherapy. There, there are primary treatments for the liver that may be applicable in certain cases, even with unresectable disease. So what has been really practice changing in the disease is the finding that cholangiocarcinoma is enriched with a large number of actionable mutations. And it is very well evidenced here by the long list, particularly in intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, which in my arguable opinion has more actionable mutations than any other um, GI tract cancer. And then gallbladder cancer has several, the chief of them being of course HER2 amplification and then extrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma looks a lot like pancreas cancer. And fortunately, we are now finding avenues to, um, avenues to target through promising clinical trials. And now we are focusing more on immune profiling, epigenetic profiling, uh, genomic profiling, and now protein profiling through, uh, for ADCs and novel agents that we will hopefully see, soon see in clinic for these diseases. But unfortunately, the, the current situation for these cancers continues to be dismal. So this is some work done by uh, my fellow, Dr. Eluri, and she did an assessment of over a thousand oncology providers uh, and found that um, uh, uh, only 85% of patients in, in, the, in the Texas oncology practice actually get treated. This figure may be even lower. There was a study in Europe which showed that only 50% of patients actually ever get treated. And then in the second line setting, 46% of patients get treated. In the third line, 17% get treated. And while the data that we will all discuss today is based on clinical trials, in real, in real life, in practice, the median time on treatment for first and subsequent lines of treatment is only about three months because patients have jaundice, they have all a performance status, et cetera, and they are not, their trajectory is not accurately reflected by the clinical trial data. So uh, again, this slide highlights the shortcomings in management of cancer. Only three to 5% of patients ever get enrolled in a trial, which is extremely disappointment, disappointing. And this is challenged by molecular heterogeneity, liver dysfunction, relative rarity. I think this is the main problem. Most patients are treated in the community or in the, uh, even in large oncology practices, they don't have access to trials, which are meant for the more common cancers like lung cancer and colon cancer. Immunotherapy has made great head roads, but we don't really understand the microenvironment of these tumors. And the um, mo uh, molecular subtypes have led to some accelerated approvals based on single arm phase two trials, but confirmatory phase three trials are really hard to do. And the current uh, paradigm for FDA approval is not necessarily suited for the rare diseases like cholangiocarcinoma. So in the first part of the talk, I'm going to talk about immunotherapy platforms, and then my, uh, my colleagues, Dr. Shroff and, and Dr. Saab, are going to talk on FGFR and other targeted therapies respectively. So uh, I'm not really discussing all the first-line options. I'm basically going to focus on immunotherapy, which has made great headway in, in uh, previously untreated advanced biliary tract cancer. So let me start with the case. This is a 62-year-old patient uh, who we will call Robert for the sake of this presentation. He presented with abdominal pain, fatigue, and unintentional weight loss. So um, the initial workup revealed the bilirubin was normal. Uh, laboratories were basically normal, a CA-99, albumin. So you can imagine this patient can go for a long time with, with sort of non-specific complaints without ever getting any imaging. 
Well, eventually Robert did, and he had multiple liver masses seen in the right lobe of the liver. As you can see, they're satellites, and there are also multiple periodic nodes. So this is metastatic, and the liver biopsy showed poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma. The immunohistochemical strain was positive for CK7, negative for CDX2, so not likely to coming from the lower part of the GI tract. CK20 negative, so not likely to be colon cancer. TTF1 negative, less likely to be lung cancer. So a good performance terrace and no, relative, no relevant tumor molecular markers. So I discuss this often with my fellows. This sort of patient doesn't need a million dollar investigation with PET scans and upper GR lower scopes, et cetera. The diagnosis is right there in pathology. So we shouldn't waste time. And then what would be the case for immunotherapy? I'm gonna jump right into the immunotherapy discussion here. Uh, immunotherapy, uh, the, the activity of uh, immuno, uh, checkpoint inhibitors in oncology has been closely linked to the tumor mutation burden and PDL1 status. So I'll start off by saying PDL1 status, PDL1 positivity occurs in about a third, um, 30 to 40% of patients with uh, uh, biliary tract cancer, uh, depending on the assay that was used. In this large study, this Alexander plot that is known for all, known to all of you, there was a nice correlation between TMB and response to immune checkpoint inhibitors. Not surprisingly, biliary tract cancer or cholangiocarcinoma never even made it to the list. But we know from experience that the, this is a low TMB tumor. The tumor mutation burden is 2.7, but there's a fraction of patients, about between two to 7%, that have intermediate or high TMB, that is TMB more than 10. So TMB more than 10 is an indication for C-single agent pembrolizumab. But it's still a minority. MSI high status is, is, is rare. It's only about 1% of cholangiocarcinomas, ability tract cancers. So these sort of data, along with some um, um, data in the second and subsequent line with single agent pembrolizumab, first led to a phase two trial conducted in Korea by <coughs> our friend Dr. Doyan Yo where she combined gemcitabine and cisplatin with durvalumab for previously untreated patients with biliary tract cancer. And to be candid with you, our expectation and hope for this combination was not high because single agent activity of checkpoint inhibitors is rather low. But very surprisingly, uh, she found that the response rate in this trial was 73%. So uh, I also want to point out that there was a biomarker cohort, that is patients who got chemotherapy first and then added durvalumab subsequently, that the response rate was lower. However, please note, none of this was statistically powered. Does that make a difference for whether you add a checkpoint inhibitor later or earlier? We don't know. But certainly it was very, it was very striking for people who had not, who started with durvalumab along with uh, Gemsys uh, with a 6% complete response rate. I just heard from Tom Schwartz, a common patient, had a complete response after uh, immuno checkpoint therapy and underwent surgery. So these examples do occur. And then the disease control rate was very high. We are not used to seeing waterfall plots like this. So this was very exciting and subsequently led to a phase three trial. This was a large phase three trial, the Topaz trial conducted uh, worldwide, uh, which in included the single agent durvalumab in combination with gemcitabine and cisplatin. And I'm gonna describe the schema of the trial a little bit in the next few, uh, in, in a few minutes. That is, durvalumab was given with gemcitabine in every cycle 
And then at the end of six months, the chemotherapy was stopped and durvalumab was given once a month. And this was compared with gemsis and placebo in essentially a similar design where placebo was continued every four weeks until progression. Patients enrolled were like Robert, locally advanced for metastatic biliary tract cancer, previously untreated. Uh, uh, they could have surgery, but recurrence had to occur over six months, and they were stratified for disease status uh, tumor location. Overall survival is a primary endpoint, and there were several key endpoints which are standard in clinical trials, such as PFS and response rate. Um, and uh, this trial was accrued, uh, this, uh, this trial accrued in really a rapid fashion throughout the world. So, uh, in terms of the overall survival being the primary endpoint, the overall survival was, was significantly improved from 11.3 months to 12.9 months. So at the face of it, this doesn't seem terribly impressive, about 1.6 months overall survival advantage. But as you see, when you go uh, from this point, which is actually six months, uh, uh, further along, these curves continue to separate in favor of durvalumab, such that at two years, there's 10% of patients with gemsis versus 25% of patients with gemsis and durvalumab who are alive and well. So there is a significant difference. This is a, uh, this is a clinically meaningful improvement and led to a hazard ratio of 0.76, so about a 25% improvement in survival. When you look at the subgroup analysis, like who were the patients who benefited then uh, we see that really there are almost all subgroups that benefited. Some, some interesting points where the Asian patients seem to benefit more than the non-Asian patients. Again, this was not statistically driven. Uh, in terms of different types of cancers, they all benefited. Uh, gallbladder cancer patient, uh, gallbladder cancer had fewer numbers of cases, so it's sort of less benefit, but as I will show you in a slide later, that's not true for all cases, that patients do benefit. And then locally advanced patients did really quite well. Uh, there was no correlation between TAP score, which is the PDL1 score used in uh, by uh, uh, durvalumab-based uh, studies. There was no correlation between that score and outcome with uh, the immune checkpoint inhibitor. So uh, th this is further discussed here in the PDL1 expression, and unfortunately, this is. Uh, not proven to be a very reliable mark, biomarker for uh, patients who receive uh, immune checkpoint inhibition in biliary tract cancer. In fact, when you look at uh, uh, PDL1 TAP1 expression less than 1%, it's still a 0.86, and for more than 1%, it's 0.79 hazard ratio. So, not really much difference in that. Uh, you can argue that if you have a very high expression, more than 10, uh, there may be some indication, but none of this was statistically powered. And at this time, uh, both the FDA and NCCN uh, do not recommend uh, treatment selection based on PDL expression for uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors for these, this cancer. Now, as, as uh, you know, we discussed, as, as I mentioned earlier, immune. Uh, Genetic, genetic uh, targets have become quite predominant in biliary tract cancer and guide targeted therapy. But what influence does, do these uh, genetic alterations have on uh, immune checkpoint inhibition? So this was a retrospective analysis looking at clinically actionable mutations and outcome from immune checkpoint inhibition. Uh, uh, this is a biomarker uh, cohort, that is uh, the BEP cohort. And as you can see, that all, of all the patients tested, uh, they all seem to favor uh, durvalumab with the exception of HER2 amplification. Uh, 
which seems to favor placebo. And uh, uh, in terms of KRAS, there was an indication that there was quite a significant improvement in terms of uh, uh, favoring durvalumab. But again, I want to warn you that none of these were statistically powered. The confidence intervals are wide for some of these genetic alterations. So this shows that really the, the alteration of immune microenvironment in biliary tract cancer does not seem to be significantly influenced, at least based on these uh, alterations, uh, and they don't serve as a useful predictive markers for selecting immune checkpoint inhibitors in this disease. So other endpoints with uh, the Topaz-1 trial was progression-free survival. Progression-free survival improved from 5.7 to 7.2 months uh, with the addition of durvalumab. And then uh, you look at uh, tumor response rates. Uh, the, o the overall response rate improved from 18% uh, uh, to 26% with the addition of durvalumab. In terms of duration of response, uh, there was less of a significant uh, change. It's about six months with both uh, gemsis and gemsis and durvalumab. So this sort of suggests that it's not just the response that matters, but it's the progression-free survival and the long tail on the curve, the duration at which the disease remains stable, uh, that makes the drug clinically uh, meaningfully use, uh, meaningful. And then uh, I have to again mention that there are, it's rare, but you do see some patients, in fact, 2% over here, uh, have complete uh, clinical response uh, with the addition of durvalumab. So in terms of toxicities, you would anticipate that the addition of a third agent would actually increase uh, toxicities. This was not really that evident. So if you look at the grade three and four treatment-related toxicities, here there's no difference, 63% versus 65% in terms of durvalumab versus placebo. Uh, and uh, in terms of treatment, uh, discontinuation A is related to discontinuation again, 13% versus 15.2%. So it's a high-level view to suggest that this is really quite well-tolerated. Now I want to jump a little bit upon the tail on the curve who are the patients who actually benefit for a longer time uh, with, uh, with durvalumab? And, and this has been explored in the 25% of patients who had a sustained response. So in that, the biomarker evaluable patients out of 685 consisted of 441 patients. And in both treatment arms, the prevalence of mutations, BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations, was higher in long-term survivors. And you would say that this is intuitive because they got gemsis, but the reality is that they got both arms got gemsis for the first six months, and the treatment arm only got durvalumab at the end of, end, end of the therapy. So this is a real interaction between pdl one and DNA damage repair mutations, which, is, which appears to be real. Um, so uh, this suggests that BRCA1, BRCA2 mutations are associated with long-term survival. Yes, it, just a prognostic factor, but perhaps maybe also a predictive factor in the setting. So I'm going to reflect that the next is the Keynote 966 study, which was really the largest study was uh, ever conducted in biliary tract cancer, which is 1,048 patients. So the Keynote 966 study was, uh, was uh, presented and published just like a year or so after, after the Topaz-1 trial. 
and the eligibility for the study was essentially the same. Uh, I don't think there is any meaningful difference. Uh, locally advanced, unresectable, previously untreated patients. They got gemsis and placebo versus gemsis and pembrolizumab. The difference in the study was the fact that in the maintenance setting, that is after six months, patients got gemcitabine plus pembrolizumab after uh, six months of gemsis and pembro. And in the control arm, they got gem and placebo after six months of gemsis and placebo. So the maintenance was not just checkpoint inhibitor alone, but also included single agent gemcitabine. And uh, overall survival was a primary endpoint. Uh, again, the secondary endpoints were relatively standard, uh, and there were some safety uh, measures that were incorporated in the trial as well, like um, in Topaz 1. And very interestingly, the figures that you see for overall survival are almost identical. That is 10.9 months versus 12.7 months. So really similar. Again, at 24 months, when you look at the survival rate, it is 18% versus 25%. Uh, so that 25% two-year survival is really the same that you get with uh, uh, gemsis and durvalabab. And then you sort of ask the question whether it is necessary to continue the chemotherapy uh, in the maintenance setting. Um, and the answer is we don't know. And perhaps we'll, I'll ask our uh, experts on the stage to comment on this. Maybe certain situations you might want to consider maintenance chemotherapy along with immunotherapy. But at least in the overall generalizable setting, it doesn't seem to be that this is a positive study, uh, very exciting signal, uh, but the role of maintenance chemotherapy versus uh, in addition to immune checkpoint inhibition uh, is, is not clear at this point when you compare this with uh, the Topaz 1 trial. Now, the third trial is the Embrave 151 trial, uh, which uh, there will be an update presented on this trial uh, tomorrow, uh, which was an essentially a similar design, but this was for a similar inclusion criteria for patients who had previously uh, untreated disease, locally advanced and unresectable. But this was not a controlled, this actually had two uh, treatment arms. It was a phase two randomized trial with the goal of then going to the best of the two. Uh, in a subsequent uh, phase three trial. So it included gemsis and atezo, the PDL1 inhibitor, versus gemsis, atezo, and bevacizumab, with the primary outcome being progression-free survival and the secondary outcomes uh, being overall survival and others. So in this study, as you can see, the median progression-free survival was uh, 8.3 in the uh, gemsis and uh, atezo arm, and versus 7.9 months in the gemsis, uh, uh, sorry, gemsis atezo bev, and 7.9 months in the gemsis and atezo arm. So it didn't meet the benchmark that the uh, investigators had proposed for success. Uh, however, um, it's not clear whether addition of bevacizumab was actually beneficial in this setting or not. Uh, the curves certainly are shown here. The gemsis uh, uh, with uh, atezo and bev seems to separate uh, from, from the gemsis and atezo. Um, and an update on this trial, like I mentioned, will be presented tomorrow uh, in the general session. But um, uh, it, it is unclear to me whether this combination will move forward in, the phase th in, in a phase three setting. So let's go back to Robert's case. So we have frontline uh, treatment of advanced biliary tract cancer with chemoimmunotherapy. Uh, as uh, you're aware, Dr. Shroff and Dr. Saab, uh, this patient presented with sort of classical symptoms or 
really lack of relatively uh, lack of much symptoms, and then uh, the radiology shows unresectable disease. Uh, some approaches were presented earlier, guidelines were presented earlier. Uh, could you comment, Dr. Shroff, about how you would approach this disease, uh, this, this uh, patient, Robert, and what would be your potential choice of treatment here? Sure, thank you. Um, you know, I think as you just demonstrated, there are clear, there's clear level one evidence that supports using gemcitabine and cisplatin as a backbone with the addition of immunotherapy in newly diagnosed biliary tract cancer patients who have good performance status and what I would presume is reasonable liver function and all of the other things that we look for. Uh, and so in this patient, I would probably start with a gemcitabine and cisplatin IO combination. You know, my, I think just by the amount of time the Gemsys Dorva has been out compared to Gemsys Pembro. I guess I've been using more Gemsys Dorva, and so that's probably where I would start with this patient. But I think that the, the rationale for either would be very reasonable. And then, of course, while doing that, doing things like comprehensive next-generation sequencing and all the other things to tee up for potential subsequent lines of treatment. So, Dr. Shroff, let me put you on the spot a little bit because there's a question from one of our uh, online attendees. So the patient has received six months of Gemsys plus IO, and how do you approach the treatment in the maintenance setting? You have a couple of choices there, and would you consider maintenance chemo-immuno or just immunotherapy alone? Yeah, I mean, I think this is everyone's kind of question that we're grappling with in clinic, and I think the fact that Keynote 966 demonstrated that it's reasonable to, to continue the, gems, the gemcitabine with the pembrolizumab while the, you know, Topaz-1 demonstrated that it's also reasonable to continue with just immunotherapy. I, I would say I take it in a case-by-case approach, you know, in somebody who's really already hit their plateau in terms of potential response and are potentially having toxicities. You know, after six months of gemcis, we start to see uh, cumulative toxicities. And so I will be the first to admit that when I used gemcis without immunotherapy, I was always a little bit hesitant to fully stop in the way that the ABCO2 trial was designed. And now with a maintenance option of continuing immunotherapy, by and large, I have a tendency to just stop the chemotherapy backbone and keep the, the immunotherapy component going. But, you know, that's, again, there's certain cases in which I would consider it otherwise, I would guess. So sometimes in my practice, Dr. Shroff, you know, if a patient has advanced peritoneal disease or uh, a situation that I feel progression could be, um, uh, any progression would be potentially limiting for survival even in the short term. I sometimes consider chemoimmuno. Would you concur, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. I think, like I said, like in certain cases where it makes me a little bit nervous to stop that chemo backbone, like I think peritoneal disease is a perfect example of that. Absolutely, as long as there's not any sort of toxicities that preclude continuation of chemotherapy. So, Dr. Saab, you, I'm going to save some biomarker questions for you. So, Robert has pdl one negative tumor. Does that influence your decision? No, it doesn't in, in some way. I mean, when you look at the data you presented, it, it, it is obvious that if you have low pdl one expression, you're going to do slightly worse, but you still have some benefit. Uh, I mean, this is within the range. So the, the, the short answer is no, the patient would still be uh, a patient I would go with chemoimmunotherapy. So th- I want to thank the attendees. We have really a flood of questions, and we're going to try to get through most of them. Um, so Dr. Saab, the patient has, Robert has MSI, high tumor. Uh, 
how would you, would you still give them GEMSYS and uh, IO? Very interesting question. So the answer is uh, no. I wouldn't give chemotherapy. That's a patient I would actually go straight with IO. Um, there's really not a lot of convincing data for the role of chemotherapy in the MSI high tumors across the board, not just in this setting. Um, and uh, you know, the likelihood in the first line to have a meaningful and durable, not just response, but complete response and the potential to cure some of these patients up to 30, 40% probably uh, uh, with uh, just pembrolizumab alone. Uh, is, is significant enough for me to consider an IO-only option for this patient. So, Dr. Shroff, is there any role for local therapy in patients with uh, this liver advanced disease, periodic nodes, in particular, and I face this question every day, what about HIFU and histotripsy, and what about radiation? Uh, uh, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the general approach, and I mean, I'm, I, I presume all three of us feel like this, is, you know, starting with systemic therapy, especially in cases like this where there's extrahepatic disease, whether it be periodic or, you know, liver mets or whatever it is, I think is absolutely the right, is, is a reasonable approach to kind of optimize disease control and our response. Uh, and then, to your point, now that we are seeing durable potentially and, and, you know, even disease control and or um, response in patients after months of the chemoimmunotherapy component, then we start to think about what's going to be um, affecting these patients' long-term survival. And in patients who have, you know, heavy disease in the liver, uh, you know, is there some benefit to potentially further controlling it? Or perhaps if there's, you know, kind of a mixed response and you're not seeing what you need in the liver, I think those are very reasonable p things to consider in terms of liver-directed approaches. And I think any of the, you know, different things that we talk about with it, whether it be radioembolization or radiation, depending on where the disease is, the ability of optimizing dose, I think is, very, is, is a, absolutely the right approach to think about in a very multidisciplinary tumor board discussion format. Thank you, Dr. Shaw. Both you and I have been taught by Dr. Vote that management of hepatobiliary cancers is multidisciplinary. So a medical oncologist should not think that they have all the tools. Um, so uh, upon follow-up, his hemoglobin was found to be nine grams. Uh, Dr. Shroff, uh, um, very quickly, uh, do you, are you concerned? How do you manage myelosuppression? I mean, I think a hemoglobin of nine is not necessarily something that, that makes me too concerned. I mean, I think with gemcyst, we actually tend to run into a little more, more trouble sometimes with things like thrombocytopenia and that sort of thing. But, you know, typically dose adjustments, depending on how much gemcyst they've had up front, obviously, I don't know when this starts to occur. But, you know, another push for consideration of just maintenance drivalumab when you actually get to the optimizing the maximum response in over six months. But beyond that, I do, you know, dose adjustments and dose reductions of gemcysts or perhaps sometimes dropping the day eight, depending on how they're doing and that sort of thing. So I want to say that, you know, in my practice, I rarely use growth factors. It's expensive and you can manage with dose reduction. Um, just a couple of slides to, sh to sh illustrate a patient with gallbladder cancer. Uh, this is a 62-year-old with painless jaundice presenting with this large mass. You see February 2022, gallbladder mass the size of Texas and hepatoduodenal ligament, liver mats. Uh, so this patient then, as you can see, had a very nice response uh, which continues and uh, she had BRCA2 somatic mutation. 
So um, I'm not, I, we're not going to have time to discuss therapeutic options here, uh, but she basically got gemsis and durva, and it again illustrates the point that DNA damage repair mutations, uh, patients have a better prognosis, either intrinsically or with uh, the addition of uh, uh, immunotherapeutics. So um, I'm going to go quickly into uh, resources that Cholangiocarcinoma Foundation can provide. Uh, uh, these are these can be shared with patients. Uh, typically, in my, I mean, most of our patients actually come from their website. But um, if even if not, I think you will find that there is a, a huge resource uh, that you can tap for your patients. There's the International Cholangiocarcinoma Patient Registry that connects patients with research, uh, helps to build a community uh, to push for further improvements in care. Uh, the other immunotherapeutic options uh, are reviewed here. Uh, they include immune checkpoint inhibitors, uh, agonist antibodies, CAR T cells. Uh, several of these uh, are, have already failed. For instance, at the bottom, Bintrofispalpha, TGF1 beta, Varlilumab. Um, uh, um, but several of them are ongoing. Uh, we had some very exciting data presented earlier today with uh, the digit antibody with um, upper GI cancer. So several other checkpoint inhibitors remain to be investigated in this disease. So this, this remains in it to be an area of uh, exciting growth. In terms of uh, second-line experience, immunotherapy has been used. This is the experience with pembrolizumab. Uh, the response rate in the biomarker uh, unselected cohort was 5.6%. In pdl one enriched cohort, the response rate was higher, approached 10%, but this was a very small number. And the, um, uh, in general, single-agent uh, checkpoint inhibitor activity is rather low. There are the immune checkpoint inhibitor combinations that are out there, a part of NCCN guidelines. For instance, lenvantinib and pembrolizumab were the LEAP trial being investigated in several trials. Several investigations, a 31 patient trial. Uh, you can see some responses resulted in 10%. And in patients with advanced biliary tract cancer who failed one line of, whose tumors have progressed after one line of therapy, lenvantinib and pembrolizumab uh, may have a role and is a part of NCCN guidelines as a category two. Uh, an arginase inhibitor study was concluded earlier last year. I'm not going to go into great detail about it because it showed a promising signal, but it's not clear whether uh, it seemed to add to the benefit of immune checkpoint inhibition. These are some of the ongoing trials with immunotherapy uh, that you can see here that include immunotherapy with checkpoint combination, CTLA-4 combination, combination with DNA damage repair inhibitors, uh, we, with, in, in combination with nilirinotecan, for instance, in the second line setting. And there will be a poster presentation um, uh, tomorrow. Uh, Dr. Shroff is gonna have some data and other, there's other presentations with uh, NAB, Paxil, uh, Lenvantinib, and Durvalumab uh, tomorrow at, from 12.30 to 2 p.m. Uh, these are the updated NCCN guidelines in the second and subsequent line setting, uh, and they include, besides after GEMSYS, uh, Folfiri, Ragorafenib, Liposomal can 5 fu uh, and targeted therapy combinations. Uh, liposomal irinotecan was, uh, is, is now NCCN recognized based on the um, uh, based on the NIFTY trial. Showed a progression-free survival now updated at four months and overall survival of about seven months. So it's another option for our patients who do not have any actionable alterations. 
So to conclude, immune checkpoint inhibitors have promising activity, uh, which is being validated in other additional studies. Topaz-1 was the first randomized phase three trial uh, that included immune checkpoint inhibitors that met its, met its overall survival endpoint, Gemsys and Durvalumab, provided a statistically significant overall survival improvement without much added toxicity. Now we have a second option based on Keynote 966 with Pramolizumab with Gemsys. Uh, we know that biliary cancers are heterogeneous and we will, that will be a discussion uh, discussed further by Dr. Shroff and Dr. Uh, Saab in terms of genetic alterations and we encourage participation in clinical trials. So the next uh, seminar uh, will be present, pre presented by Dr. Saab and Dr. Shroff, uh, and it's focused on personalized biliary tract management with targeted strategies. I'm gonna start with targeting FGFR alterations, uh, current status and treatment options and future directions. Over to you, Dr. Shroff. Thank you. So we will start this uh, with a case and obviously come back to visit it after we discuss some of the really exciting data in FGFR-altered uh, cholangiocarcinoma patients. So let's talk about Lisa. She is a 60-year-old female patient who presents with abdominal pain, fatigue, and unintentional weight loss. Initial workup shows a bilirubin of 1.2, mild elevations in her liver function, but otherwise normal uh, platelets. And imaging shows bilobar hepatic disease with pulmonary metastases, and the patient has a good performance status. She's treated upfront with the Durvalumab and gemcitabine and cisplatin based on the Topaz-1 data as Dr. Javale just presented, and progression is noted after four months. So, of course, when you approach these patients, the first question is, uh, is she a candidate for further therapy? Uh, unfortunately, as a lot of us know, some of our patients are not able to continue on and receive subsequent lines of therapy. But uh, in the setting of second line and beyond, would you consider targeted agents? And given that baseline testing is incomplete, what additional testing would you order? So we're going to start with those questions, but let's come back to that case in just a minute. Because uh, I think it's safe to say, I say this all the time, that biliary cancers are really the poster child for precision oncology. And I think those of us who treat this disease know that understanding the genomic landscape of the biliary tract cancers, uh, the, the biliary tract cancer patients is really a fundamental step in managing them optimally and in, in providing them with the best possible care. So here you see the timeline in terms of approved therapies within the biliary cancer space, some of which are more for tumor agnostic approvals, like things like MSI high, as Dr. Javali just alluded to with, um, with the question for Dr. Saab, with pembrolizumab, uh, and things like NTREC fusion positive tumors, which are exceedingly rare in biliary tract cancers. But starting in 2020, you see really kind of a stepwise, in incredible pro uh, amount of progress in terms of targeted therapy approvals with pemigatinib and infogratinib, which has subsequently uh, been taken off the market, and futabatinib, which are the three FGFR uh, inhibitors that are, uh, are approved in FGFR2-positive cholangiocarcinoma, in addition to ivacitinib, xanadatumab, uh, dubrafenib, and trametinib, and then uh, breakthrough designation for TDXD, which Dr. Saab is going to be talking about some of other, those other targets. So when we talk about FGFR signaling, this is uh, a very complex signaling pathway, and I'm not going to belabor it, but I think it's important to recognize that there are a number of different FGFR alterations, and each of them work in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different ways to basically 
create and promote uh, tumor proliferation as well as um, increasing metastatic potential. And you can see that the oncogenic fusions, which is what we typically talk about when we think about FGFR2 altered cholangiocarcinoma, are listed there. But in addition, you see that there are potentials for activating mutations as well as overexpression. So when testing for FGFR, you really have to start to think through how to optimize and provide the best possible uh, comprehensive testing to identify FGFR alterations. And we think about all kinds of different mechanisms, starting with things as, as kind of simple as immunohistochemistry, uh, and then work our way through FISH, uh, RT-PCR, and next-generation sequencing. And you can see here the advantages and disadvantages. Knowing that FGFR fusions are really one of the key things to capture when looking in our biliary tract cancer patients, you can see that there are some ways to identify fusions with things like FISH and IHC, but we don't always necessarily know the fusion partner. Uh, and so next generation sequencing, which provides comprehensive genomic testing um, and are usually able to identify the fusion partner and the, and the breakpoint in terms of the position, um, is really probably the the primary method that we use nowadays in terms of identifying FGFR alterations in our patients. Uh, additionally, you can also detect potential resistance variants, and we'll talk about that a little bit as we work our way through the first generation of FGFR inhibitors and start to think through the new drug development in this space. That being said, for those of us who know, uh, that turnaround time is not necessarily as quick as we need it to be. Uh, and so next generation sequencing's disadvantages, of course, include things like the wait time, as well as uh, the, the, fa the fact that oftentimes samples don't have high enough quality and optimization for um, nucleic acid uh, retrieval. The other area of, of great interest, of course, remains liquid biopsy, since that is non-invasive. It has a quicker turnaround and is a powerful tool both to monitor the actual responsiveness to disease in some spaces, as well as evolution of resistance. So when we think about Lisa's case, Lisa was diagnosed with an intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma with bilobar hepatic uh, disease and the pulmonary metastases. Like I mentioned, she has a good performance status, and she was treated with the Gemsys immunotherapy combination up front, but progressed after four months. During that time, comprehensive genomic testing was performed, and an FGFR2 BIC1 fusion was captured. So, Dr. Javle, what treatment options would you consider next, and would you have done anything differently, for instance, if the alteration had been captured earlier? Well, I'll take the easier one first. What treatment <laughs> options will you consider next? The patient has had one first-line therapy, and then there is an FGFR big one fusion. So we have currently two uh, FGFR targeted agents that are approved that uh, you're going to discuss in, subsequently. So I'll choose between one of them uh, as a single agent. And what if the age alteration had been captured earlier? Uh, you know, the simple answer would be they are not approved in the first line setting right now, but they're only approved in the second line setting. Um, so unless the patient had difficulty tolerating Gemsys, Durvalumab, uh, I would wait for that uh, uh, before changing. Okay. Well, as you just mentioned, when we look at our current NCCN guidelines in terms of subsequent lines and targeted therapy options, in the setting of refractory biliary tract cancer for cholangiocarcinoma patients with FGFR2 fusions or gene rearrangements, we have two, two drugs that are in the guidelines and that are FDA approved, and that is futabatinib and pemigatinib. 
That is really based on some incredible uh, work and uh, global efforts in terms of uh, identifying these patients. The first was the FIGHT202 trial, which is looking at Pemigatin. They've been locally advanced in metastatic glandiocarcinoma patients. And this was a study that had multiple cohorts uh, for patients with locally advanced or metastatic glandiocarcinoma and had known FGFR uh, alterations. And you can see that the cohort A, which was planned for 108 patients, was that cohort that looked at the FGFR2 fusion and rearrangement. Uh, and these patients all received oral pemigatinib uh, at the 13.5 milligram dose, two weeks on, one week off. And when you look at the cohort A patients, the median, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the overall response rate was 37% in the 108 patients with a disease control rate of 82% uh, and a duration of response of 9.1 months. So obviously very exciting signal and in terms of efficacy and that led to the FDA approval and subsequent EMA approval uh, for pemigatinib. Specifically, when you look at uh, progression-free survival and overall survival, you see those curves here. In cohort A, the FGFR2 fusion uh, patients, the median PFS was seven months, and median overall survival was 17 and a half months. So when we kind of benchmark this, which none of us should really cross-compare trials, but when we think about our patients in the second line and beyond setting, you know, Dr. Javle, Dr. Saab, everyone kind of always quotes the median PFSs in the couple months range, two to four months, and you know, median overall survivals are, are quite dismal. So when we look at this type of, uh, of this type of data, this is this was a, of course very exciting and clearly demonstrating efficacy, not only in terms of response but in terms of survival. The durable response component, I think, is another thing for those of us who take care of these patients we know is really quite clinically meaningful. Uh, and so you see the waterfall plot here, but that median duration of response in cohort A of 9.1 months uh, was also, I think, I, I think again, like a, a very important endpoint that we think about in our biliary patients. Uh, and I just want to point out that it, at this, this year's meeting, there will be some real-world data in terms of the high rates of FGFR testing and the use of pemigatinib with efficacy outcomes that really kind of, I think, augment and really amplify the benefit that was seen in the initial FIGHT202 study, and that will be a poster presentation tomorrow, so be sure to look for that data. The other drug that, uh, one of the other drugs that was looked at in terms of FGFR uh, inhibitors, again, uh, an oral drug, infogratinib, uh, this was a, the, the phase two trial that, again, included patients who were refractory and had FGFR2 gene fusions. They received infogratinib at 125 milligrams daily. Uh, and again, primary endpoint was overall response rate. This was Dr. Javle's data. And the overall response rate in 108 patients was 23.1%, uh, with uh, a time to response of just over three and a half months and a median duration of response of five months. Here, again, we see a median PFS of 7.3 months. So both drugs now we're seeing that kind of seven-month range for median PFS and a median overall survival of 12.2 months. That was all by blinded independent central review. Slightly higher ORR was noted in the investigator assessment. So overall response rate there was, three, uh, was 30% essentially. That drug, uh, unfortunately, is no longer, it was FDA approved and is no, no longer available to us, but we have a second drug that is available, and that is the food, that is Futabatinib. So Futabatinib is also an oral FGFR inhibitor. It works slightly differently than Pemigatinib and, and Infogratinib in terms of uh, being a covalently bound uh, irreversible inhibitor uh, as, as opposed to Infogratinib and Pemigatinib that bind in the ATP binding pocket. 
The Phoenix CCA2 data actually was published in the New England Journal, uh, I guess now last year in 2023. Uh, and here, again, these were patients who had FGFR2 gene fusions or rearrangements, 103 patients, and again, a beautiful waterfall plot that we don't typically see in terms of biliary tract cancer patients. Objective response rate in this patient population was 41.7%. So again, we're starting to see overall responses in the mid-20s up to 42%. And disease control rate here, again, 82.5%. So 70 to 80% of patients demonstrating a disease response across the, the, the class of drugs. Um, the, and one patient actually, in fact, had a complete response. There are other drugs that have been presented uh, in terms of this kind of first generation, if you will, of FGFR patients and have also looked at other FGFR alterations. So darazantinib, this data was, pre uh, was uh, presented by Dr. Borad and looked at FGFR2 mutated and amplified, so slightly different patient population, uh, relatively rare, is, again, in terms of uh, al the alterations seen in intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. But you can see here that the overall response rate in the FGFR2 fusion patients was 22.3% and 6.8% in patients with mutations or amplifications. Median PFS for the uh, fusion patient population was 7.8 months, again, same that, in that same range, uh, and 8.3 months in patients, who, uh, in patients who had FGFR2 mutations or amplifications. Uh, so we're starting to kind of think through potential activity of FGFR inhibition in not just the fusion and gene rearrangement space with some of these data that, that's starting to emerge. And then Dr. Punt actually presented, uh, I think at GIASCO last year, uh, the Ragnar trial, which involved a number of different baskets, including uh, a biliary cancer or, or uh, cholangiocarcinoma basket. And this was the erdafitinib data. So erdafitinib had gotten had made a big splash in the in the GU world, uh, and this study specifically looked at FGFR uh, altered cholangiocarcinoma patients. And again, you'll see here that patients who had FGFR alterations, not just fusions, were included. Uh, and the overall response rate was actually 60%, with a median duration of response of 5.6 months and 100% disease control rate. Uh, the swimmer's plot there, again, demonstrates that some patients not only had response, but had a very durable response with treatment that was ongoing at the time of his presentation. And again, you'll notice that there are some responses seen not only in fusion patients, but also in FGFR mutation for uh, positive patients, for instance. So when we look across the board, the FGFR patient, the FGFR inhibitors that we have available for FGFR2 fusion-positive cholangiocarcinoma patients, we have the pemigatinib data, we had infogratinib and futabatinib, and then we have the data that I just mentioned briefly in darazantinib and erdafitinib. The FDA approvals really came through in the first three drugs. Um, all three of them had, on, had or have ongoing trials in the first-line setting, so these were... Uh, uh, accelerated approvals that required confirmatory trials, and so the ongoing phase three trials are listed there. Uh, but you can see, again, across the board, what the range is in terms of 20-something to about 40-something overall response rates with median PFSs in the seven to nine-month range, and median OSs uh, upwards of 21.7 months, for instance, in futabatinib. 
Now, when we think about FGFR inhibition, we also obviously know that there are class effects in terms of AE management. And when we all started treating these patients, I think in the beginning, it was a bit of a steep learning curve to really understand how to manage patients proactively and preemptively in a a way to be able to keep these patients on these drugs as opposed to having to to interrupt therapies and or uh, significantly dose reduced. So there are, there are adverse events that are noted that are specific to FGFR signaling, and then there are those that are nonspecific. The ones that are specific and that we, I think, I would say were somewhat prepared for when these trials were written were things like hyperphosphatemia, and so a lot of these trials had very clear um, guidelines in terms of low-phos diets and phosphate binders and, and, and management and such. Um, the nail changes, the alopecia and hair modification, the dryness across mucous membranes, dry eyes, dry mouth, um, mucositis, uh, those were all things, I mean, I, I, I would imagine Dr. Javelin and Dr. Saab would, ex- would agree with me. They were actually very tricky to learn how to manage, and some of these things I, I would say we're still learning, um, and they can be quite impactful in terms of quality of life on, uh, for our patients. And then there was some ophthalmologic concerns that uh, require baseline ophthalmologic exam and, and routine ophthalmologic monitoring. The nonspecific ones are things more like fatigue, anorexia, GI distress, arthralgias, um, and then some of the off-target kind of VEGF-related inhibition. Uh, by far, the most common adverse event that was seen for FGFR inhibitors was the hyperphosphatemia, and anywhere from 60 to 76% of patients demonstrated that across the clinical trials. Um, again, those were, you know, laboratory as opposed to kind of trying to understand what is truly clinically significant hyperphosphatemia, which has also been a bit of a learning curve, I would say. Um, here you can see there was very clear guidelines given in terms of management of FGFR inhibitors, and you can, I'm not going to go through this uh, point by point, but the really important things was related to you know, education of, of patients in terms of low-fast diets and working with a nutrition team to help build a, a, a diet for our patients that was still appetizing and, and palatable, um, and then the use of phosphate binders and, and when to really uh, implement those types of interventions and, and how to kind of manage that from that is is really the, the two main, uh, I would say, thing, approaches that we've all taken. In terms of the ocular toxicities, like I mentioned, ophthalmologic monitoring was really key here. Um, the FGFR inhibitors were associated with, uh, thankfully, rarely, things that are quite serious, like retinal detachment and central serous retinopathy. The more common things were things like dry eyes. Uh, and patients were really, like I said, were recommended to have a baseline eye exam um, and any sort of signs such as blurry vision or anything really required kind of a quick evaluation by ophthalmology. Uh, And so partnering with our ophthalmologists has been really important in terms of using these drugs with our patients. And you can see that the management here was really about discontinuation of inhibitors, uh, of the inhibitors if grade three or greater toxicities were noted. The dermatologic ones, like I mentioned, again, um, you have the, the nail component, you have the dry skin, dry eyes, dry mucous membrane component, and you'll see there the, the stepwise timing of it. So, you know, quickly you start to see the stomatitis and dry mouth, um, and then a little bit later, a little bit more along the skin, and then the nail changes start to set in really around month one, uh, around month two. And again, Partnering with our, our multidisciplinary specialists is really important. Uh, having that dermatologist available to you to really help is with more grade three or a more intolerable grade two types of uh, toxicities was really key. 
Uh, and then some of the suggestions related to the nail bed changes and uh, um, skin changes are listed there. Uh, I, I think the, the general fe- feeling has always been, you know, as soon as you start to demonstrate some of these changes, really early intervention, I think, is key to be able to prevent significant grade three ty- types of toxicities that require drug discontinuation or holds. So just very quickly, I want to go through the, the, what we call the next generation of um, FGFR inhibitors. So there's the lirafugratinib, which I still call 4008, which is a highly selective irreversible FGFR2 inhibitor that demonstrated signs, in, um, signs of activity not only in patients with fusions, but also in patients with mutations and amplifications, and also had some suggestion that it could work in patients who had developed resistance to the first generation of FGFR inhibitors. Um, also, because it's so selective, there was suggestion that there was fewer on-target AEs. And then tinagotinib, which, is, uh, which targets multiple pathways and uh, really, again, specifically targets what are known acquired mutations related to resistance with prior treatment with FGFR inhibitors. So this is the relay data. Um, this, this drug uh, showed tumor, uh, tumor regression across all kinds of different FGFR2 alterations. You'll see them color-coded there with the fusions being in the gray, but um, prior treatment, prior treated fusions are in green, and mutations and amplifications were noted as well. And in the patients who were FGFR inhibitor naive, that's the, that's the slide, the graph on the, the waterfall plot on the right, and that was 38 patients, and you can see the patients in the blue who were at the recommended phase two dose of 70 milligrams. That was 17 total patients. Um, Here, the overall response rate was 63.2% with the majority of patients seeing a tumor reduction. The tinagotinib data is, uh, again, there was initial data presented with 17 patients, and um, the, that, that's the waterfall plot that you see here. Again, deep responses in patients who demonstrate response with the partial responses in green on the, on the right. Um, that was initially presented, but uh, tomorrow we are going to see the uh, updated data from Dr. Javle. So I'm not allowed to talk about it, I don't think, but we're looking forward to that presentation. So I think we might do one question, Dr. Sharoff. What is known about FGFR2B alterations in CCA? To my knowledge, they're extremely rare. Um, And uh, how would you interface these multiple FGFR-targeted therapies? So... um, yeah, I mean, I think that's everyone's favorite question in clinic. I mean, I know, I mean, I learned from Dr. Javle because we were in, in clinics uh, as these, these drugs were, in, were being developed, and the idea of trying to make sure that we provide each of these drugs and find a way to sequence through them is really, is really how we've tried to approach this, again, with probably no real data to really back up how we approach what, you know, which one to use first and which one to use second. Obviously, as we've learned more and more about resistance and have identified um, you know, the, the elegant data that came out of Dr. Goyle and um, her team related to gatekeeper mutations and, and you know, how to possibly circumvent some of those things, which was earlier with the first generation of drugs, you know, that I think sometimes drives us. So we use ctDNA, identify where potential resistance mutations could be, and then think through whether or not futabatinib, post-pemigatinib, might make sense. Um, but the, you know, the other obvious thing is, is now we have this next generation of drugs that seem to potentially circumvent some of these known, more com- quote unquote, common um, resistance mutations. And so, um, you know, I think it would be uh, very prudent. Like we try to have some of those trials available to our patients to be able to have those available. 
So let's uh, go to the next talk. Dr. Um, Saab, uh, we are very excited to find out what's, going to, what's the future of other, targeted, uh, other targets here. And his talk is and other promising targets for personalized treatment of BTC, exploring emerging evidence for IDH, uh, her to be raf and more. Thank you. I think the future is now in lots of ways, but uh, a lot more work to continue to be done. I think it's an exciting time uh, in, in uh, you know, biliary tract cancers. Um, you know, it's a pretty dizzying slide and, 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 uh, and uh, in, a, in a good way. Uh, it shows you the amount of activity, the amount of targets. Uh, this is a disease that, uh, as uh, Dr. Javli presented initially, that's very target-rich. Um, some of those are less common, some of those are relatively more common, uh, uh, but overall this is a rare disease with a lot of drivers, and high, as you've seen, at least with the FGFR2 fusions and FGFR inhibitors, a high response rate, and we'll see now, you know, some of the other agents uh, that uh, are being developed, have been developed, or, and continue to be developed. So the first is... Uh, Ivocidinib, which is an IDH1 inhibitor. Now, uh, IDH, IDH1 mutations are present in about 15 to 20 percent of patients uh, with intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas, um, and so it's a common alteration in that uh, group of, uh, of patients. Um, now, uh, ivocidinib uh, itself does not have uh, a significant activity in the sense that it does not shrink tumors. Uh, it seems to synergize well with chemotherapy, and therefore its development ultimately, you know, will, uh, uh, and it will be likely as you move it up the line with chemotherapy. In this study, however, in the refractory setting, uh, with, in patients who uh, failed prior chemotherapy, uh, Ivocidinib was uh, administered in a randomized fashion versus placebo. And this study allowed crossover, so a crossover design, design at the disease progression, and ultimately the primary endpoint of the study was progression-free survival, as it makes sense, in crossover uh, designs. Uh, so the study did show a superior outcome with Ivocidinib versus placebo, uh, at the median uh, almost double uh, the median PFS. Uh, or, although there were no responses, the disease uh, control rate was higher um, with ivocidinib versus placebo at uh, 53% versus 28%. So more patients actually acquired stable disease that was prolonged. And you see the uh, differences with the medium PFS here, disease control rate. Overall survival itself was uh, uh, slightly higher. 10.3 versus 7.5 month. Now, importantly, uh, the, uh, the study actually used uh, an interesting methodology to adjust for this crossover piece. You know, as you, when, you, when you have crossover design, uh, you may blur the line on the overall survival. So they used what, what is called rank-preserving structural failure, failure time method. I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but it, it essentially is a method that does adjust for this uh, crossover, uh, and uh, as if so, what it looks like, uh, what it looks at is what if these placebo subjects never actually crossed over? Where would their overall survival fall? So, if you look at the green line, uh, uh, the green line is the one that's adjusted, and when you actually place that line, 
uh, the hazard ratio drops from 0.79 to 0.49, and that seems to be statistically significant. So ultimately, that led to the approval of this agent as single agent in refractory patients. Relatively well tolerated, uh, you know, the usual uh, toxicity, so uh, some GI toxicities and, and, and fatigue with ivocidinib. There are other strategies. I mean, this is a very interesting target in, uh, uh, in uh, uh, biliary cancer. I said it's a common target, 20% of the patients with uh, intra up to 20% uh, with intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma will have an IDH1 mutation. Now, another interesting uh, um, pathway to target is DRBB pathway. As we know, we have HER1, ERBB1, and then ERBB2 or HER2. So the initial experience with ERBB1, so targeting EGFR, uh, uh, has uh, led to negative studies with cetuximab, penetumumab, erlotinib, and others, uh, although a little bit more of a response with cetuximab, but overall, these studies did not pan out to move forward with targeting HER1. The story with HER2 is a little different. Uh, and, and much more interesting in terms of the responses we've been seeing. A number of agents have been developed and are being developed uh, in this space from uh, trastuzumab plus, uh, plus pertuzumab or tucatinib, uh, trastuzumab deroxtecan, uh, and zenidatamab uh, or zani, ZW25. We'll talk a little bit about those uh, <coughs> in a bit. So, the first uh, experience with uh, HER2-targeted uh, strategies was with pertuzumab and trastuzumab. Uh, and uh, this was from the My Pathway study. It included patients with HER2-positive metastatic biliary cancer alongside with a lot of others. This was a basket trial. Um, and this, uh, this was uh, uh, published by Dr. Javli in Lancet Oncology in 2021. And essentially, the study does show uh, a nice... Uh, uh, response response for those patients with HER2 positive disease, which tend, by the way, to be mostly uh, either gallbladder uh, or further down extrahepatic, fewer in the intrahepatic uh, space. Uh, but the response rate uh, across the whole uh, the the whole group was about uh, close to 10 percent. Uh, I'm sorry, close to 23 percent with probably the highest in gallbladder. Median PFS was 4.2 months and overall survival 14.2. We recently published this study in Journal of Clinical Oncology. Uh, Dr. Nakamura uh, from uh, Japan uh, was first author on it. This was also presented at ASCO 2023. And essentially, the combination of Tucat and Trastuzumab uh, which looks pretty promising in uh, uh, colorectal cancer uh, as well as uh, uh, breast cancer was looked at here. Uh, and you can see the response rate was uh, essentially 47% in 30 patients that were looked at with a median duration of response of six months. Uh, uh, this was relatively well tolerated uh, with very few actually grade three plus toxicities. Uh, and uh, actually a very interesting uh, profile. Another agent that I think you know, is, is very exciting is that agent called Zeni Datamab, uh, ZW25, which is a bispecific antibody for HER2-expressing cancers. Uh, so this is a very uh, unique in terms of its geometry, in terms of how, how it binds uh, to, the, to the target sites with dual uh, HER2 binding. 
uh, uh, you know, and, and of course, as, as most of these uh, <clears throat> antibodies expect some level of uh, ADCC as well. Uh, the Horizon uh, study was a global phase to be study with Zeni uh, Datamab, monotherapy, and HER2 amplified biliary tract cancers. This was presented uh, by, uh, by uh, Shub Shubham Pant and, and also published by Shubham and uh, Jim Harding in Lancet in 2023 and, and, uh, and the rest of the group. Uh, 100 patients with HER2 amplified biliary tract cancer. Uh, ultimately showing a very meaningful activity in patients with HER2-positive disease. Again, we're seeing responses in 41% of, of uh, the patients, uh, and uh, a median PFS about 5.5 months. And the median duration of response was very interesting here. It was probably one of the highest reported uh, in, in the space. Again, you know, not doing cross-study comparisons. Uh, but the median duration of response, uh, that's 12.9 months, is pretty impressive uh, at face value. So we're seeing with these HER2-target therapies, uh, at least with tucatinib, trastuzumab, uh, and with Zani, high responses tend to be durable uh, and seem to essentially be moving the needle forward. Uh, trastuzumab darakstecan is another agent that's been looked at in a number of GI malignancies, including this one. And now, trastuzumab darakstecan, the way you want to think about it, this is not necessarily a HER2-targeted strategy. It takes advantage of the ex HER2 expression on the surface of the cell to deliver essentially a cytotoxic agent. So it's more targeted chemotherapy uh, per se. And uh, there's, uh, so there's the trastuzumab-like uh, antibody and then a linker. Uh, and then deroxtecan, which is a topoisomerase inhibitor, which seems to be ubiquitously active across multiple malignancies. So the Herbie uh, trial, again, with trastuzumab deroxtecan, uh, showed the response rate in the HER2 positive, true HER2 positive, of 38.5%. Uh, uh, in the low-expressing tumors, there was some uh, baseline activity, perhaps less impressive, as you would expect it, because less expression leads to less, uh, less drug available at the, at the site, uh, and therefore less activity. But nonetheless, again, goes with this theme, for about 40% of these patients seeing responses, and these uh, duration of response here was about 5.5 months, uh, 7.4 months. Uh, the toxicities were pretty uh, uh, expected. Uh, these are mostly chemotherapy-related toxicity. Again, remember, this agent uh, primary uh, delivery is delivering chemotherapy. It's a cytotoxic agent, and a lot of the toxicities are chemotherapy-related. One of the toxicities that is uh, quite concerning is interstitial lung disease and pneumonitis, which we see across uh, 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 all the studies with trastuzumab deroxtecan. Uh, again, at 8% uh, here and, and more, uh, uh, those with more severe interstitial lung disease uh, uh, at, at uh, essentially 12%. So, so this, this toxicity is, is one toxicity that always gives us a little pause when considering this, this agent um, and where to place it. The, if we look at the cumulative data with trastuzumab and it seems to preserve uh, uh, meaningful activity regardless of prior exposure to HER2-target therapies. 
And so in this disease, as well as in, in others, I think the be better placing for it, given the risks of toxicity, specifically this one, is a likely post other anti-HER2 therapies. Uh, so the response rate seems to be uh, uh, similar, whether pretreated or not, same for PFS and others. And so in this uh, instance, it gives us another layer of a HER2-targeted strategy uh, uh, following uh, uh, direct targeting of HER2. And this just shows the uh, uh, destiny pan tumor 02, uh, which essentially, uh, uh, again, confirmed activity in this, in this space. Uh, the other pathway of interest in this disease is the MAPK pathway. We've done a lot of initial work with MEK inhibitors, showed some baseline activity, so that just, you know, told us that this, uh, this pathway is, is one of the driving pathways for this disease. So some of the developments, more recent developments, have been uh, in uh, targeting uh, BRF E600D as well as direct targeting of KRAS mutations. So BRF-V600E mutations, which are, depending on what part of the world you live in, uh, are between 2% in the western part of the world to 10% uh, or more in uh, uh, South America, so, uh, South America and, and, and Asia. Um, this study, the ROAR trial, ROAR trial looked at the brafenib plus trametinib, so a, a RAF inhibitor and a MEK inhibitor uh, in patients with BRF-V600E mutated biliary cancer uh, in the refractory setting, showing a response rate of 53%. Um, as we know, BRF-V600E mutations are uh, prognostically are uh, uh, drivers of significant adverse prognosis. And so the duration of response here was about 8.9 months with a median PFS of nine months in this patient population. So very interesting, again, for this patient population. I, I think, you know, when, when, we, when we look, we go to the story of the FGFR all the way to HER2, BRF, and we see next KRAS G12C, you see consistently that actually by identifying a target, uh, the response rate is consistently above 40%, and, and these tend to be durable. So these, this is an interesting disease, unlike a lot of other cancers we work with. When you find a target, it's most likely a driver for this cancer, and so hitting it actually produces a high level of response, uh, which in my viewpoint justifies, over time, I know we've had the question, so what do you do with a patient who has an FGFR2 fusion? Uh, do you get excited about perhaps as quickly as possible moving away from chemotherapy? The answer is perhaps. Uh, you know, the responses with all these agents surpass actually what we've seen with chemotherapy. I'm not saying you should do it, uh, because that's not where these are approved, but the reality is I want to do it in a heartbeat when I get to it. Uh, the, uh, this study we've uh, published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology uh, recently. Uh, this is with adagrasib in patients with G12C mutations. Extremely rare mutations, pretty rare in ability tract cancer, although we had you know, a few patients there, 12 of them uh, with uh, in the ability tract cancer cohort. The response rate overall looked pretty promising, I and mean, you can see that on uh, on the waterfall plot, and this was, uh, a, if, you, if you ever look into the appendix, you know, separated pancreas and biliary tract, and the response rate was, again, 42% here, uh, with a median PFS of uh, nine months and, and 15 months for median overall survival for this small subgroup of patients. Again, refractory patients, multiple lines of therapy, uh, in my viewpoint, again, pretty impressive 
uh, responses, you know, uh, when we look at those uh, patients, at least the ones I've treated, you know, the response is swift and tends to be quite durable in those patients. So there are a number of other uh, targets in clinical trials, and, and, and frankly, you know, this is all, only a very small list. Uh, you know, this is, as I said, you know, an area that's just prime uh, for uh, developing targeted agents and, and, frankly, ultimately move the needle forward uh, or continue to move the needle forward. Okay? Give you back four minutes. Thank you, Dr. Saab. Uh, we have several questions, and I want to also invite the audience here um, to um, uh, please speak up for any questions that you may have. Uh, let me start with a couple for you, Dr. Shroff. Um, what do you know about hyperphosphatemia in, biliary, in uh, FGFR inhibition? Is there a known mechanism, and how do you treat I think you, you went through very eloquently how you treat it. Uh, but in terms of hyperphosphatemia, is there a particular reason? Yeah, so, you know, as I mentioned, this is an on-target effect uh, and is very specific for FGFR inhibitors and is known to be related to the, the, the signaling pathway and its effect on the renal tubules. Um, and as, as seen in the prior clinical trials, like I mentioned, the majority of patients do experience hyperphosphatemia. And so, um, you know, as, I, as the slide showed, there's a lot of, there's a multi-pronged approach, I would say, in terms of management. Um, and then again, as I, as I mentioned, as we've become more comfortable using these drugs, we've started to really recognize, you know, what clinically relevant hyperphosphatemia is as opposed to what was really written into the trials. But, I mean, I definitely advise all of my patients to try as much as is possible a low-FOS diet, and then I use the phosphate binders uh, as, as the primary modality usually um, to try to have to prevent dose interruptions and things like that. Usually, like I said, if you do those things, you're able to manage it pretty easily. And I also want to remind the, uh, uh, the, the clinicians in the audience that for hyperphosphatemia has to be monitored quite carefully. Sometimes I check it every week in the first few cycles, because if you check in the first week of every cycle, they've been off uh, FGFR inhibitor for a week, for instance, with pemigatinib, it's going to be normal. So I've seen patients come from the community with terrible calcinosis who had normal phosphate levels because they checked it on day one when it's going to be normal. So it has to be monitored quite often. So Dr. Shroff, th Dr. Saab, thank you for a very nice presentation on HER2. Now, what is the best test for HER2? Would you do NGS? Would you do IHC? Or what, what do you think is the best way to look for it? Yeah, the great question. In fact, you know, when we look at the study, actually, uh, that... Uh, that was recently published, and you look at the different platform, there's actually quite a bit of concordance between IHC and next generation sequencing. Uh, so either actually uh, uh, identify as correctly patients. In fact, we had also, uh, a, uh, 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 we did circulating tumor DA, so liquid biopsy. Uh, and uh, the concordance rate was, was a little bit lower. So tissue, tissue concordance is the highest. Uh, with, uh, with, with liquid, it goes down to about 80, so still meaningful, 80%. In, 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 in the sense that, and that's what I do now in my clinic, and I see my patient sending uh, you know, blood for circulating tumor DNA, I'm sending for tissue. If I find it in blood, it's going to be in tissue. If I don't find it in blood, I'm still going to wait for tissue because there's a chance I may miss, miss that. And when it comes to the fusions, um, now, we're talking about HER2, but when it comes to the fusions, you know, liquid can miss even more so, and really, uh, tissue becomes important. So, tissue is good, NGS, IHC, 
equally uh, appears to be equally good, and then you lose a little bit of of accuracy with the liquid, uh, but it's still pretty high at 80 plus percent. So um, this is from a patient, uh, Dr. Saab. I am um, on ivocidinib, and do I have to wait for serial pro- serious progression? to show up on scan, or can I use a liquid assay that will pick up a changing mutational situation so that new approaches can be considered early? For ivocidinib? Yes. To add it to chemotherapy? To monitor liquid biopsy to see how things are progressing rather than wait for CT scan progression. Uh, So at this point of time, the role of serial circulating tumor DNA is a probably, it's not validated enough um, to take a decision on a, a, a changing a course in terms of therapy. Now that said, you know, some studies are looking uh, for circulating tumor DNA as a possible marker for early progression, but this has not been validated as of yet. So I would not move away uh, from, uh, you know, from one treatment to the other at this point of time based on circulating tumor DNA. One of the elements that actually has a large utility, at least in our practices, since we have a lot of clinical trials and practices that have clinical trials, is circulating tumor DNA can essentially, uh, uh, at progression, can detect alterations that may, may arise uh, that could explain uh, progression, but also could create opportunities for targeting. So the only time that I would do it and I would use it at this point of time in a clinical setting is to identify emerging, uh, uh, emerging clones that may explain resistance um, at the time of progression. But I think it's a pretty good... Uh, it's I mean, a fantastic In the near future, question. probably that's what we'll do, right? That, now, that will be yeah. absolutely... And I hope that will be our future. I mean, you know, the, the goal is... The goal is ultimately if we can find highly sensitive, highly predictive... Uh, uh, markers such as ctDNA serial monitoring that could help us essentially depict progression sooner than we see it on a scan or even uh, a biomarker so that's a fantastic question uh, we don't have the answer yet but it, it is the path to the future so dr. Shroff this is a bit of a hypoth- hypothetical question and there's at least two of these why is cholangiocarcinoma increasing yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think you know the your publication you know identifies I think a couple different a couple different thought processes. I mean, number one, something is probably to be said about the better recognition and/or classification of what was historically thought of as carcinoma of unknown primary, and the ability to delineate that no longer as a cup and more so as a intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. And you know, I don't think that's necessarily shifting epidemiology as much as it is just improvements in diagnostics. Um, you know, and then I think the other things are just related to what we are seeing in, in, in risk factors and lifestyle and modifications and things related to uh, our, our uh, obesity epidemic, our, our fatty liver uh, disease and the, and the rising incidence of that, uh, and all of the other things that are kind of associated with underlying chronic eventually cirrhosis, but just kind of chronic inflammation within the, the um, liver microenvironment and the biliary system. 
Uh, but I, you know, I think there's probably a, it's, it's a myriad in terms of what el- what else is contributing. But I think those are probably two of the larger driving things. So I want to point out that uh, Dr. Hassan from our institution, along in a study with Dr. Shah and myself, she looked at patients with uh, or multiple risk factors, young patients who get cholangiocarcinoma, and she found that really it was early onset obesity that was most likely associated obesity in in childhood and early age group. Uh, that in her series was associated with cholangiocarcinoma in the young, uh, almost equivalent risk as uh, you find with PSC. Uh, so, Dr. Saab, there's a patient who has portal vein thrombosis. Does that influence your treatment in any way at this time? Um, advanced. Advanced unresectable. Uh, no, it, it wouldn't. Simple question. Simple answer. It sure. complicates their management. It, it would, but <laughs> it could. Yeah. Uh, it, it's 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 probably more of a factor if the patient was early stage, of course, yeah. uh, for a lot of reasons. But uh, in the in the more advanced setting, probably not as much. Sure. Uh, in, in, you know, I've learned from in our multidisciplinary meetings, there's some patients with early stage can be salvaged with radiation therapy to the portal vein, but it's. Uh, not an accepted practice everywhere, maybe something unique to our center. Um, when a, um, uh, I have metastatic cholangiocarcinoma, no gene mutation, uh, will a repeat biopsy be of any value? So with no known mutations, repeat biopsy? You know, again, this is where I, th- I, I, I feel that a, a, circul- a circulating tumor DNA has tremendous value, added value. Uh, you know, there is some level of heterogeneity, uh, although it's not, uh, you know, if you have a KRAS mutation, you're going to find it uh, anywhere you're going to put the needle. Uh, but others may be, may be a little bit more heterogeneous. And, you know, one of the things, uh, other than fusions, although, you know, there are now some liquid tests that are including RNA, there's one in particular that's including RNA, uh, or you enhance your likelihood of picking up fusions. Uh, but a liquid biopsy essentially, you know, gives you a sum of um, essentially every shedding tumor um, across. And so in many ways, it may give you a little bit more of a hint about uh, targets that you may not find directly into tumor. There is intratumoral and intertumoral heterogeneity. And circulating tumor DNA can capture essentially the large uh, sum uh, of alterations across, uh, you know, across uh, the tumor. So I would not do another biopsy. I would just rely on, uh, on a liquid biopsy. Um, I think we probably just have time for one more question, Dr. Shroff. Uh, the patient is ineligible for cisplatin. Um, what would you consider as a first line of therapy for previously untreated patient? Well, I mean, it depends, you know, are they ineligible for all platinums versus, you know, uh, just specifically cisplatin? Uh, You know, there are people with, for instance, you know, kidney, uh, like renal insufficiency kidney issues that prevent cisplatin, but perhaps could allow for uh, use of of oxaliplatin, for instance, and considering giving a gemcitabine and oxaliplatin combination. Um, and so if they're, you know, eligible for a platinum, then I would choose a different platinum in addition to gemcitabine with the recognition that we don't have data to combine it with uh, immunotherapy. But, you know, doing some sort of gem platinum IO 
combination as long as they were allowed to receive platinum. If they're not, if they're platinum ineligible, um, you know, it, again, it, it's a lot of it depends on performance status and such. But even doing gemcitabine with an immunotherapy could be considered, or perhaps you know, some other gem-based backbone. I mean, there's, as you showed on the NCCN guidelines, there are other gem combinations that could be considered. Um, but, you know, it, it depends on if, if platinum is even an option. Uh, thank you. This was our final question. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, the Cholangiocarcinoma Foundation. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash GUS 860. This educational activity is supported through independent educational grants from AstraZeneca and Insight Corporation.